Okay. Well, let's begin our time in God's Word, shall we? You want to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 3. It was uh, Edmund Burke, who was a, a member of Parliament in the House of Commons way back in the 1700s, and he was the one that famously said that those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. That's right, destined to repeat it. And a similar phrase was coined by American President Theodore Roosevelt, the more you know about the past, the better prepared you are for the future. And I, you know, I would say, well, I would hope that would be the case. That would be a good thing that we, you know, we would learn um, from from history. But, but from my observation, I don't think that's the case. And I think it was South African Anglican Bishop Desmond Tutu who had it right. He said this: "We learn from history that we don't learn from history. That's what we learn from history." And I would agree. History is full of warning signs. History is full of man's failures. And now we are strangely living in a time where we want to ignore history, want to cancel history, so we can just forget history altogether. When history is there for a purpose, we're meant to learn from it so that we don't repeat the same mistakes that we have in the past. And yet, wow, here we are right now, today, repeating many of the same mistakes of the past. And this is the wonderful thing about God's Word, is a book of history, isn't it? It's a book of history. And last week, the author presented to us the argument that Jesus was greater than than Moses. And we looked back at the Old Testament. We looked at the Old Testament book of Exodus. We walked through some of the history of Moses, and hopefully you were able to see what an incredible man uh, Moses was, what what a faithful man He is. uh, We looked at how he was divinely protected at birth. He wasn't killed. He was was able to survive. God divinely chose him to be the the leader of the the Hebrews to bring them out of slavery, and he became the greatest deliverer uh, that they had ever known. And he also became the greatest prophet that they had ever known. God, God gave him the law, and he gave it to the people. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so, He just became this great man. And yet, with all of that, he was the humblest man on earth, we learned. And so, when you look at history here, and you look at the Old Testament history of the Israelites, you go, wow, there's a people who had the greatest possible start. (laughs) They had the greatest leader that had ever ever been. They had uh, Moses. But in addition to that, they had the one true God, didn't they? The one true God literally with them. He demonstrated his power so marvelously uh, before them. We read some of these verses last week, but I remind you, you know, when he talked to Moses about what he would do to show the Egyptians who he was, he said, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, all my wonders. I'm going to do some amazing uh, things. And after that, they're going to let you go. And that's exactly what we see uh, happened. And so all these wonderful, the, the, these miracles God did, they were plagues, they were judgment upon the Egyptians, but it, it brought the people out of Egypt. And, and guess what? He just didn't send them out empty-handed. He demonstrated his favor uh, with them. You might remember as well that he instructed Moses that he would give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, that when they went up to their neighbors and asked for articles of clothing and, and articles of silver, that they would give it to them. Do you remember that? 
And then we read that's exactly what happened. I'll put this verse up for you. It's Exodus 12, 36. This is after the last plague. The firstborn is, is died. Pharaoh says, fine, go, get out. And it says, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So, so not only did they get to leave slavery, but they plundered them on the way. They took all their stuff and they left. So God just showed his favor as well he, as his presence. He went with them. Remember the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? And we're told that he never removed that from them. They were constantly reminded of God's presence with them. And then you come, come to the grand finale of their release from uh, bondage with the Egyptians. And it's what? The destruction of Pharaoh's army. God changes his heart. I'm just going to take you back to Exodus real quick. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to read this little bit. We didn't really look at this part last week. Exodus 14, verse 4. God tells, uh, tells him what he's going to do. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And, and that's true. That's exactly what, what happened. Pharaoh's heart all of a sudden had a change he hardened it. He turned. He said, what have I done? I'm going to go get those guys. And so they, they chased them, didn't they? And they, they found them at the Red Sea. And what happened? They weren't trapped. The Red Sea had parted. Another demonstration of God's amazing miracles. And, and so Pharaoh's army traveled into the sea following them. And we're told the, this in verses 28 to 31 at the end of Exodus 14. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. And not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the land of Egypt, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant. Now those are amazing words. They saw what the Lord did, they feared him, they believed him. And then you have the song of Moses, this wonderful song. And, and we're told that the Moses sang it and the children of, of Israel sang it in Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I will praise him. All these wonderful things. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? This amazing song that they sing. What a great start Israel had. But tragically, as fantastic a start as the Hebrews had, it doesn't end well. We're told that there were 600,000 men, not counting women and children. So estimates are upwards of 1.5 million people that walked out of Egypt. But of the 600,000 men, 20 years old and above, only two, only two entered that promised land. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. And unless we know and we learn from history, listen, folks, we're in danger of repeating it, aren't we? And guess what? We come to a chapter today that is just that. It's a New Testament reminder of history. It is a warning to us. In fact, I told you that there were five warnings in this book of Hebrews. This is the second. We have covered the first warning. And just by way of reminder, I want to take you there real quick in chapter 2 of Hebrews. This was the first warning in verses 1 to 3. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect 
so great a salvation. You might remember this warning was directed toward those people who heard the truth of the gospel. They believed the truth of the gospel. They just never responded to the truth of the gospel. It's a call to them to give earnest heed to the things that they had heard, to not neglect the salvation that had been offered them. And if you don't respond, the writer said, you're in danger of drifting away. Remember, we looked at those words, drifting away, gliding by. Secure yourself to the truth, to the things you've been taught, because you're in danger of drifting past your opportunity for salvation. If you don't secure yourself to the truth, when you hear the truth, you're in great peril. And that warning came with an argument from the lesser to the greater, as a reminder here. The law of God came to man. It came mediated by angels, and that was so firm and so steadfast. Uh, God never neglected to punish sin. We looked at some Old Testament examples of that. And so if God punished all who disobeyed his, his law in the Old Testament, what would he do to those who refused his son? That was the argument. So while that first warning encouraged people, make a decision before they, they drift away, before you miss the opportunity, this warning here in chapter 3 encourages people to make a decision before their hearts harden. Before their hearts harden. The word harden here in the Greek is skleruno. It means to make hard or to become obstinate or stubborn. It's used three times, three times in chapter 3 here, and even once in chapter 4. A heart that is hardened is no longer capable of responding to the Holy Spirit. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The last hardening was his end. A stubborn or obstinate heart results in God's rejection. At that point, it's God finally says, you know, I've had enough. And we're going to see that from the examples today. So the title of this sermon today is Don't Harden Your Heart. So we'll look at the passage here. We're looking at chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. So 7 to the end of, of chapter 3. Follow along. Chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let's pray. God, we come to a very important passage here, Lord, a warning which gives us pause. This is something we must deeply reflect upon, Lord, as we pray that today you would indeed give us opportunity to receive the truth here, Lord, that your spirit would be among us, that you would reveal truth to us, Lord, that we'd see that, um, Lord, there is a time where your patience ends and there's no longer an opportunity. 
It's the hardening of the heart. So I pray that we be open today with soft hearts to receive your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a real simple outline that's not profound in any way, but just really to help us kind of go along through this passage. Three points I'm going to point out as we go. The example, the exhortation, and the examination. I'll explain that one at the end. But So the example, the exhortation, and the examination. Let's look at the example. He starts right off with the example here in uh, verses 7 to 11. And the author has already been talking about Moses right before this. And so he uses an illustration from Old Testament uh, Israel under Moses' leadership. But before we get there, I just want you to notice the first part of verse 7. It just says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. I love that statement because I think it's one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture to the divine inspiration of Scripture. Because he's going on to quote Psalm 95, which is what David says. Remember, I told you that the author never says, so David says this here, or Solomon says this here. He says, the Holy Spirit says, which is the truth. All of God's word is God breathed. In 2 Peter 1.21, we're told, for a prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Bible was written by men, but it's the words of the Holy Spirit, as we see here, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Very important. So the author goes on from there to quote Psalm 95. Now, we just read Psalm 95 this morning as our call to worship. What he quotes here is Psalm 95 right at the point that I stopped. I read up to 7a, the first part of 7. He quotes 7b, the second part of verse 7, on through verse 11. That psalm was penned by David, but, but here's what's so important here. The second half of this verse, verses 7 to 11, is, is coordinating with the second half of verses 7 to 11 in our passage today. It's the same thing in Psalm 95. It's very, very interesting that that sort of matches up together. You'll see that because we'll end up looking at it. But look at seven, uh, second half of 7, and I'm just going to read that to verse 9, and then we'll sort of unpack all of that. It says this, Today... If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Now, there's two key words here in this passage that really help us to understand what it means to harden your heart. What does it mean to harden your heart? Two words actually help us, and you'll see it. Rebellion is one of them there in verse 8, and trial is the other. Rebellion is and trial. Now hold on to those two, and let's go to Psalm 95 and have a look at the actual psalm as penned by King David. Psalm 95. I probably should have just told you this morning to mark that, because we're going to go back to it. So here we are back in Psalm 95. And again, the first part of it is a call to worship because of who God is. He's the Lord. He's the great God, the great King, um, creator of everything. We must kneel down. We must bow down before him, and we must worship him. And I stopped with, and the sheep of his hand. And then the second half says of verse 7, today, if you will hear his voice. Do you see that? Picks right up into what we just saw in Hebrews. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, if you have a Bible that has a margin and it has little numbers and notes there, you likely have a little number or a letter next to two words there, rebellion and trial. 
Yeah? So if you see that number next to rebellion and in your margin, then you should see what is meant by that word rebellion. It's meant to draw us back to something important, something specific. My margin says meribah or strife is what mine says. And also the other one is trial, which is masa or testing. So rebellion, meribah, and trial is Massa. Now, those words, Meribah and Massa, are, they bring us to an event. They're specific words. We're meant to go, oh, I know those places. And maybe if you're not that familiar with history, you'd have no clue. But this is why history is important. It reminds us of something in Exodus 17. Let's go back to Exodus 17. We're going to just jump around our Bibles a little bit today, so get your fingers ready for this. But Exodus 17, we've got to see what event this is referencing. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse uh, 1. I'm just going to read this whole section because it's in, in, important. And this is, you know, this is, you know, coming out of Egypt. They've come out of the, they're going through the wilderness. They've received bread from heaven, manna that God has miraculously provided for them. And verse uh, 1 of chapter 17 says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now here's the key. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Here is the reference. It brings us back to this event. Can you just imagine this? Of all the miracles they saw coming out of Egypt, and then the Red Sea parting, and then God miraculously providing for them manna from heaven, they come out here and go, Oh, but you didn't give us water, so you really don't care for us. You, you, you brought us out here to kill us, clearly. And so they want to contend with Moses. They, they are rebelling here is the idea. And that's why it's named this Meribah, rebellion, and Massa, tempting or testing or, or trial. And I can't even believe they asked the question at the end, is the Lord among us or not? Amazing. And what's even more shocking is that this event repeats itself near the end of their 40 years of wandering, and it's recorded in Numbers chapter 20. If you want to take a look, you're in Exodus, just make a right-hand turn. Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. Numbers chapter 20, this whole thing repeats itself, which is just absolutely shocking, but it happens again. Why does it happen again? Well, probably because they didn't consider history. (laughs) But Numbers chapter 20, verse 2, it says, Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, just like they did before. And the people contended, there it is again, 
with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we had our animals, we and our animals should die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So here they are complaining again. And then down in in, uh, verse, the end of this chapter, Moses is commanded again to bring water out of a rock, but this time to speak to the rock, and then water would come out. But he's so angry, he strikes it. Remember that? He strikes the rock like he did before. But because he disobeys God, that one act of rebellion on his part, which I kind of can't blame him. I'd be a little irritated with the people. That kept him out of the promised land. But in verse 13, this is what we're told, that what, what this water was, was the water of Meribah. Do you see that again? Because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. It was rebellion. And this is, this is a tragedy. This is, this is awful. They had seen God's power clearly displayed. They had the miracles, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the manna, even the quail. And yet they had so hardened their hearts, they could, they could say something as, oh, is the Lord even among us? Is he among us or not? And so that's why the psalm, you want to go even back to our, 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 our passage in Hebrews. That's why it begins there, because you can see it's, it's a quotation of Psalm 95. Uh, back in our passage, today, if you will hear his voice. Today, if you will hear his voice. This is so important. I want to take a moment with this. If he is speaking to you today, respond. That's why it says today, if you will hear his voice. Don't wait. If you know the truth and you've heard it and you believe it, don't wait to respond to it. Don't do what Israel did. They never, never trusted God. They seen it. They understood it. They believed it. But they never trusted him. They saw his truth. They saw his revelation. And remember, they even praised him for it. But they never really trusted him. Instead, we're told they tested him. And here we see it in verse 9 of our passage, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. The Israelites, they had overwhelming evidence of God's power, didn't they? All those years in the desert, and God never, never failed to provide for them And no wonder the warning comes to us today to to respond. Today, why wait? Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. He says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you see that? God offers to hear. He offers to help. But when does he offer to do that? Today. In the acceptable time, in the day of salvation. Let me explain what that means to you. There's a great story, D.L. Moody. You remember the evangelist and teacher, D.L. Moody, in Chicago? And he, he preached one time. He told his people to go home and think about what he had said and to come back tomorrow at the next service and be prepared to make a decision. I thought, wow, that's pretty great. You know, you're, you're put him on the spot. Guess what happened that night? The great Chicago fire. Many of the people in his congregation never came back. They died. And from that point on, you know what D.L. Moody never did again? He never said, oh, go home and think about it. He said, today is the day of salvation. You need to make a decision today. Now is the acceptable time. We don't know when we're going to have another today. When you're hearing the truth, this is the point. That's today. That is your today. And listen, we can reject and we can resist and we can do that, but it comes to a point where you sear your conscience. 
You actually deaden the nerves of your own conscience. That little God-given faculty that helps you to determine what is right and what is wrong, you actually deaden the nerves of that. It no longer functions. The more you reject, the more you resist. And that's what happened to the Israelites. They rejected that. They resisted that. We're told about it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. What Israel did in the desert, says, will be repeated as in the New Testament. It's going to happen again. People will depart from the truth. They're going to listen to doctrines of demons. They're going to go completely the opposite way. Why? Because they've actually they seared their conscience. They've deadened the nerves. It no longer functions because they've rejected, they've rejected, they've resisted. Those who know the truth and then depart from it are known as apostates. Remember we went through the book of Jude. It's all about the warning against apostates. The Israelites were apostates. They knew the truth. They just chose to depart from it. And when a person sears their, their conscience, then listen, no amount of evidence, no amount, will convince you. It doesn't matter what kind of miracle anyone does. Remember the parable Jesus told of, of the rich man and, and Lazarus? And they both died. And, and Lazarus was a poor beggar, but, but he went to Abraham's bosom. He was in the presence of Father Abraham. But the rich man was in torment in, in Hades, and they were separated by a great gulf. But, but the rich man could look across the gulf, and he could see Lazarus. He remembers him, and he could see him in, in comfort and he says, could someone just dip me, you know, dip, dip their finger in water? Just give me a little drop of water. He's calling out to Abraham. Abraham says, listen, while on earth, he had it bad, you had it good, and you had your opportunity. Now the roles have been reversed. What's his point? It doesn't matter your station on life on earth. It doesn't matter. What matters is eternity. He said, now you, now you are looking back going, I wish I had something. He says, and besides that, I can't come to you. There's a great gulf separating us. I can't come to you and give you water. He said, okay, well, listen, I have five brothers. I don't want them to experience that. Please, please go and warn them. And he says, well, they, he, has, he has the same thing everyone else has. He has Moses and he has the prophets. He's got the Bible. They have that. Have them read it. Oh, they won't listen to that. But listen, if you send someone back from the dead, they'll believe it. Amazing. Do you remember what he says? Luke 16, 31. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Do you know why we know that's true? Because one rose from the dead, and they still don't accept it. Incredible. Listen, a person's today is when their heart is soft. A person's today is when their conscience is sensitive. Their intellect is convinced about the truth of Jesus. That is your today. They believe it. But listen, you can have unbelief with belief, can't you? They have unbelief as well because something's holding them back. They're not sure why. They can't quite trust in him. You remember that man who brought his son to Jesus? The son was demon-possessed, and the demon kept throwing him into the fire and all of those things. Horrible situation. In Mark 9, 23, I want you to see Jesus, what he said to him. He said, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my what? Unbelief. There's, there's something there. There's an unbelief. Help me with the unbelief. If you have that unbelief there, you need to cry out to the Lord. Get, do the Father cry, help my unbelief. But if you resist, if you resist long enough, you're going to eventually miss your opportunity 
It will no longer be today. It will be tomorrow. And tomorrow will be too late. There is a point at which God says, enough is enough. And Israel is a reminder of that. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. That really brings my mind to the final and fatal rejection of Israel. Uh, It's in Numbers chapter 14. I'm just going to go there. You don't have to turn there, but Numbers chapter 14, if you'd like to turn with me. This, is the, this was the, the, the clincher, really, here. God is going to send them into the promised land. They're, they're on the border. They're going to go in, and they wisely decide to send spies in. The spies go in, they spy it out, and they come back with, oh, it's great land, it's great fruit, but we can't go in. We're just grasshoppers. We're these tiny specks. There's mighty people. There's a mighty, mighty walls, mighty villages. We just can't, we can't do it. It's too much for us. We can't do it. And so we have a big weeping taking place in, in Numbers 14. So all the congregation lifted up their voices. I can't believe all of them did this. And they cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Listen, they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They didn't want Moses to lead anymore. Let's find someone to take us back. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only, and here's the warning, Do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You would think, okay, yeah, good, 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 good speech, good. No, this is what they do. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. It's shocking, shocking. They're finally there, and they just couldn't do it. So what happened? God said, I'm done with you. Look at verses 22 to 23, if you're there with me. This is what God says about it. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these 10 times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But he goes on to say what Caleb obviously would go in and Joshua would be the general to lead them in. Only Caleb and only Joshua entered that land. Shocking. You cannot reject the Lord time after time after time after time and time and think it's going to be okay. God does say, enough. You tried me. You tested me. You're done. You're not entering my rest. You've hardened your heart. Look at verse 11, this is what he says. So I swore in my wrath, back in our passage here, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That was it. God was done. They shall not enter my rest. And we're going to see in the next chapter that that's a symbol of salvation. It's a symbol for us in the New Testament of salvation. They had missed their opportunity. 
So here, here is the opening example, the opening illustration from the history of Israel that God will only be patient so long. When your today has passed and it becomes tomorrow, you're never going to get another today. It will be too late. Today is the day of salvation. So the example, that's given. But now comes the exhortation. The exhortation. Look at verse uh, 12. And actually, we're going to have three exhortations uh, here. The first one comes to us in verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. So this first one, I would say, is guard your heart. Guard your heart. That's what you need to protect. In fact, isn't that our verse? (laughs) For out of it spring all the issues of life. Guard your heart. Beware. Take heed. Watch out. That's what it starts with. Because you too, just like the Israelites, you can end up with an evil heart of unbelief. An evil heart of unbelief. Listen, this word unbelief is apistia. It is unfaithfulness. That is the word. Unfaithfulness. Unbelief is unfaithfulness. It is a lack of uh, uh, to trust God and his promises. To see everything, but I just can't trust it. I can't trust him. I can't put my full faith in him. And you might be thinking, as many people do, well, you know what? If I saw God's power displayed so miraculously like they did, I mean, I, I would never depart from him. And people demand that sometimes, don't they? I mean, if God, have him, have him part, you know, the river Taff. You know, let, have him do something miraculous for me, and then I'll believe. Have him do something for me. And I would say, you know what? We are surrounded, the world is surrounded by a, a, an amazing miracle beyond the creation, and that is the church. And I think in the church, we forget the miracle of redemption. <laughs> it is a miracle, folks, what God has done in our lives. Your soul has been redeemed. You actually have been transformed from the inside out. Aren't people today trying to recreate themselves externally? God did that internally. It's incredible. You become an entirely new creation. Also, you look at the marvelous display of his power to have the Holy Spirit living inside you, working inside of you. But so many even, quote, unquote, believers, many people in Christian circles, in churches today, take all of this for granted. Remember, this message is to those people who, yeah, I believe it, yeah, I believe it, yeah, I believe it, but they've never really trusted him. I don't think they've seen the miracle of redemption. I don't think they understand the blessings that have come to them in Christ. And I want to remind you of some of those today. I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 1. Take a short left-hand turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to read a little bit, but I would tell you, if you want to be reminded of all the great things you have in Christ, just read the book of Ephesians. I don't have time to go through it all today, but let me just start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, and here it is, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he begins to list them. Let's just go through. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption. We just sang a song about adoption. To adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. He made us accepted. I didn't make me accepted. He did that. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. I'm one of those. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be the, to the praise of his glory. And in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. <laughs> All we have to do is read scripture, right, church? You're just like, does that not blow you away? We, we are walking miracles, <laughs> They need to see the church being the church. So what do we need to guard our hearts against? What leads to unbelief? I want to remind us of some things we actually covered about a year ago. It's in 1 Corinthians 10. I told you we walked through Scripture a bit. So if you're in Ephesians, make another left-hand turn and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It was almost a year, slightly over a year ago that we went through 1 Corinthians 10. A very similar passage of Old Testament examples, Old Testament history to warn us, to warn us to take note of what happened to Israel. Look at chapter 10, just the first five verses. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. You see this? this they had the great beginning, right? They, they all passed through the same sea. They were all baptized into Moses. They ate the same food. They had all the wonderful spiritual blessings. Yet, what happened to all of them? They all died. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. It started so great, it ended so terribly. Why? That's what the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is about. And I'm just going to go walk back through these rather quickly because these are the same things that we have to guard our hearts against, against an evil heart of unbelief. The first one is worldliness, and it comes in verse 6. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The word literally means they fell a lusting. What do they lust after. I'll just put the verses on the screen just for time's sake today. Numbers 11.4, this is what they did. Now, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. That's the fellow lusting word. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? <laughs> I love it. I love it. God does all these miracles. He parts the Red Sea. He brings them out to the wilderness. He gives them manna from heaven. He gives them water. He's like, yeah, but I really prefer meat. Where's the meat? Why don't we have Meat. They lusted for meat. They craved meat. What did God do? He said, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. I'm going to give you meat till it comes out your nostrils. And he just rained quail on them. Listen, that wasn't provision. That was judgment, folks. Judgment. Literally rained upon them. Numbers 11.33 tells us this. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Many of them died. They lusted after things. Remember, and they do that the whole way through. Well, I wish we had the onions and the garlic and the leeks. And I, I, I just wonder, where, where, where's your breath mints as well? Because, oh, but they just wanted all the food of Egypt. And now all we have this is miserable manna. Oh, you mean angels' food? 
that God made for you. They lusted after, they fell lusting, this deep craving. And God says, you need to have a different craving, a craving for, for me, my provision for you. How many of us do that? How many of you just fall into craving things that God hasn't given us when we have given so much? He's given us so, so much. Worldliness is all of our enemy, all of us. We must guard our hearts against that. What goes right in line with that is idolatry. It comes from verse 7, still here in 1 Corinthians 10. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As is written, the people sat down to eat and they drank and they rose up to play. We're, we're told by this, this phrase here, it directs us straight to Exodus 32. It's straight to that event where Moses was delayed up on the mountain. They thought that God had killed them or whatever. And so they asked Aaron to make him a god. Remember that? So Aaron said, well, give me all your gold and I'll make you a god. And Exodus 32.4 tells us this. He received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and he made a molded calf. And then they said, this is your god, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And with that, they rose up to play. They committed uh, sexual immorality. And that's what Moses came down to see. Now, we might not have um, those kind of idols that threaten the church today. We might not have so many physical idols, but we, boy, folks, we have many, many idols. We have idols of success. We have idols of self-love, self-gratification, comfort. It just goes, you know... We have our idols. They missed the comfort of home. They missed the, the, the easy-to-worship gods and the idols they had all around them. Make us a god. Give me something to worship. We worship is at heart, aren't we? We worship. There's many things that you can worship, but we need to worship God. And God's reaction to idolaters, even to those so spiritually privileged as, as the Israelites, should serve as an example to us, a warning to us. He, he wiped them out. There's another one. goes right in hand with that in verse 8. It's sexual immorality. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Now that sin was alluded to in the previous section because they did commit sexual immorality there. But, but Paul expressly deals here with this 23,000 number, brings us to the incident in Numbers 25, where the children of Israel were committing harlotry with the women of Moab, which we learn later came by the hand of, or the, the, the counsel of Balaam, who was a false prophet. And so all, this plague broke out, and God killed 24,000 of them. And you know, there's very close ties between idolatry and sexual immorality in our culture, isn't there? Very, very close ties. You look at what the idolatry of, of self-love and acceptance has brought into the world today into the point where all manner of sexual morality is being accepted and practiced in churches, in the churches. Self-love, acceptance, it's idolatry. What else do they do? They tested God. That's in verse 9. Not, uh, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. How did the Israelites of old tempt Christ? Interesting, isn't it? Now, we looked at this example in Exodus 17. Remember, that was the trial, the masa, the testing at the waters. And the verse was 17.7 in Exodus. So he called the name of the place Masa, tempted, and Meribah, contention, because of the contention of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? What kind of challenge was that? 
if Lord was really here, he would have done something really amazing. Or that's not really what they're saying, is it? He would have done exactly what I want. If Lord was really here, he would just have given me exactly what I want. Surely God's will is not to lead us to a place with no water. Uh, remember, you know, God provided spiritual drink, spiritual drink, a miraculous spiritual water. You would think they had learned from that event, but they didn't. They did this again. And the record in Numbers 21 of this event, this reference to serpents, is that God judged them with serpents. The snakes went out and, and bit them. And, and to stop that plague, Moses had to make a bronze serpent right, to put up on a pole. And, and everyone who looked upon the pole then would be healed. And, and Jesus made reference to that event to say, so will be the Son of Man. You lift it up and you look upon Christ, you'll be healed. But they tempted God. And, you know, we do the same thing. We try God. We tempt him. We begin to think we know better than God. God wouldn't lead me here. God doesn't want me to be unhappy. God doesn't want me to be poor. God doesn't want me to be suffering. And so I need to get out of the situation, even if it means disobeying him. God wouldn't do this. God wouldn't do that. Is God even among us? We can do that, can't we? Even when the evidence of God's work is so clearly evident, it's dangerous, dangerous to presume to question the plan and purpose of God to tempt him. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What's the point? You don't know better than God. I don't care who you are. You don't know better than God. Don't try God. Don't tempt God through your dissatisfaction with what God is doing and how he is doing it. He knows what he's doing. And the dissatisfaction of the people, it manifested itself primarily through their complaining. And that was the, the, the last thing he mentions here in verse 10. Nor complain as some of them also complained, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And, you know, this is the thing. They became negative, pessimistic complainers and grumblers. That's what happened at, at the, the border. We just can't do it. And the majority were just negative and pessimistic. And over and over again, you read through Numbers 14, all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. How long will I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I've heard their complaints. And so the carcasses of you who have complained will fall into the wilderness. And we read in verse 36 that, 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 that all of the people who complained against me by bringing a bad report, all of them, they'll die by the plague of the Lord. I mean, the Lord did not want to hear any more complaining, but it came from this dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for their lives and the lives of, of others. And it, it's not okay. It's not something that God takes lightly. Now, I just took us here just to give us some examples of things that can lead us to a heart, an evil heart of unbelief. And when we do that, then we, we turn to other things that pl to place our trust in, don't we? And that is how we depart from the living God. Going back to our passage in, in Hebrews, uh, that is what it is the, is the danger here. If you have an evil heart of unbelief, you depart from the living God. Israel did it. They didn't get to enter his rest. So guard your heart. God has graciously also given us help in this. And I think this is the second exhortation. And it's in verse 13. It's help each other. That's why we have the church, folks. That's why we have one another. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I tell people all the time, you can't do this on your own. I said, find a brother and sister in Christ who will walk through this with you. Because we need to be exhorted. That means encouraged. What's it say? Daily. Why? Because our hearts, they can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, sin is deceitful. 
That's the nature of it. It tells you you're going to get something good when you're not. It tells you you're going to find blessing outside of God's will when you're not. Listen, I've seen over and over and over and over and over again. I've begged people. I've begged them, don't do this. You know where it leads. If you take this step, God will not bless it. But you know we want our sin, don't we? And I've seen ruined, ruined lives time and time again. We need advice. We need encouragement. We need accountability. And we need it daily, folks. The deceitful nature of sin, it blinds us of real danger. We need others to see that danger sometimes for us when we don't see it for ourselves. When we are to do this, we're to do it while it is called today. Do you see that? Before the hardening takes place. When it's still today, you wait till tomorrow, that is too late. A hardened heart no longer hears the admonition of God. The conscience is no longer functioning. It's been seared. Think about how different, you guys, it might have been for Israel if there had just been mutual encouragement of the body instead of that mutual negativism. I just couldn't believe the entire congregation came and complained and then wanted to replace Moses and they wanted to stone him. It's unbelievable. Only two. Only two. Remember they had grasshopper complexes. We're too small and our problems are too big, which means their God is too small. God's not even the equation, really. So we need people in our lives, don't we? We need to help bring God back into our worldly perspectives. And you, you have to have those relationships. Help one another. The third exhortation comes in verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ, and if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Very, very similar to um, the end of verse 6. We looked at this last week, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. But last week in verse 6, it said, We are the household of Christ. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. Well, here it says we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. The word confidence in verse 6, last week we looked at it, meant fearless confidence, courage, boldness. This is a different word for confidence. This word here is hypostasis. You know what this means? Firm foundation, a firm trust. See, the other one meant be bold. Be, be courageous. Remember, we looked at that word. It's the same word we're going to see later. Boldly enter the throne room of grace. This is a different word. Go back to the firm foundation. Stand firm on that. Your assurance. So once again, this is the pastoral message. The pastoral message is, listen, folks, we got to persevere. There's danger out there. Anyone can be deceived by sin. And anyone can come to a place of unbelief, as we see by Israel. We, we can't put any of us above that. And don't we see it in the world today? Aren't we shocked when we see people like, how did that person fall? I I just held them so highly. Deceitful is a sin. Somewhere there was a heart of unbelief. Somewhere there was some sin working, some pride coming on. Somewhere something was telling him, well, I, I actually do it pretty good without God. That's what happens. So, once again, the recap comes to remind us of why this is. Verse 15, while it is said today, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So it's today. So hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Now comes the examination. Really, this is just the recap to see if you've understood everything clearly. We get a little examination, a little question and answer. Three questions are given to us. The first question comes in verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? I love how he says it here. Who? heard, rebelled. So today, if you will hear his voice, you have to go back to that, right? 
So who, hearing his voice, after hearing his voice, after seeing all his miracles, who rebelled? That's what he's asking. Well, all of them. All of them rebelled. That's the answer. He says it. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? They all rebelled. Yeah. Oh, question two. Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Who was God angry with? Well, all of them. Why was God angry with them? They sinned. So it's, we're told here, was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? They died in the wilderness because of their sin. And question three, verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? I think this final question really drives that point home. It was the disobedient that did not enter his rest. And so verse 19 says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That's the reason. That's the reason. Unbelief. The departing from the living God we looked at earlier, that's described as hardness of heart. We see it in verses 8, 13, and 15. It's described as testing in verse 9. It's described as going astray in verse 10. As rebellion in verses 15 and 16, as sin in verse 17, and as disobedience in verse 18. Hard heart, testing, going astray, rebelling, sinning, disobeying. And here the author indicates that all the all-encompassing problem is unbelief. All of those things go into the envelope of unbelief. All of them do. A hard heart? Why do you have a hard heart? Unbelief. Why do you test God? Unbelief. Why do you go astray? Unbelief. Why do you sin? Unbelief. Why do we disobey? Unbelief. It's an unbelieving heart. Psalm 78 is a recap as well of the failures of Israelites in the wilderness. It recaps everything that they did. And Psalm 78, 22 sums it up perfectly because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Why did they do everything they did? It's shocking to read it, right? We read it and go, I just I cannot believe the Israelites. When we really should look at our own lives, we should look at the church today and say, I can't believe the church does what the church, I can't believe I do what I do sometimes. They did not believe in God. They didn't trust in his salvation. Belief, trust. Those two things require us to obey. It's a requirement. Disobedience is a lack of faith in the living God. And we're warned to beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. I know some people will sit here, well, this is, this is not for me at all. Well, Hebrews says, any of you, lest there be in any of you. I'm saying it to me. We got to be careful. The failure of the Israelites became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. They're an example, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, an example. We can't ignore history. God judges sin and his patience only so long. Jude chapter 1, verse 5, we'll end with this. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He saved them and then he destroyed them because they didn't believe. Those who disbelieve and they disobey, they, they never entered God's earthly rest. That was the theme of the Old Testament there. Here, New Testament, belief and obedience must persevere to the end if we ever hope to enter God's heavenly rest. And I mentioned this last week, 
I believe in the perseverance of the saints that those who truly his will persevere because it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when I look at my own ability to persevere, I'm pretty weak. If I say I could just do it by my own willpower, I'm pretty cocky and arrogant. And guess what happens after that? You fall. We need the Holy Spirit, and we also need one another to encourage one another on belief and obedience, perseverance. Do you believe in the promises of God? Do you trust in him? Have you committed your life to Christ, trusted in him for salvation? Amen. If you haven't, guess what? It's today. It's today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for the the author of this wonderful book who takes a pause, who takes a time to stop his argument, stop making his point about how Jesus is greater than this or that, to say, beware. Beware. I hope you're listening. I hope you're listening to what I'm saying. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't drift past it. And also, don't harden your hearts. We are told in God's word that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. They're horribly wicked. We are not basically good human beings. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We're fallen human beings, and we need a Savior who will recreate in us a new heart. Take that heart of stone out and replace it with a real fleshy heart, a heart that loves God and strives to serve Him but also gives us his Holy Spirit that we might have that promise who is, and I quote, that guarantee of our inheritance. That those who are truly his are guaranteed the inheritance because of the Holy Spirit. It's his power that will help us to persevere. But from the human perspective, from the pastoral perspective, we as a church, we as believers in this fallen world, we must persevere I, I don't know where people are individually. I don't know how they're struggling, and we need one another. So I pray that you would help those today to really hear this message. Anyone who hasn't truly committed themselves to Christ, they've been holding back. They're like that father who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, would you give them that push? That's what this chapter is. It is a push. It is a shove to say, just accept him. Do it. Don't wait, because today is the day of salvation. Oh, Lord, may your spirit just work in the hearts of your people. For your glory, we pray.